Normally at this point, I say something about our next sermon in Philippians will be this or that, but we finished Philippians last week. And so we're moving on to talk about uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. We're in, into the Easter season. And so this Sunday, we're going to talk about this Sunday, which is typically called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. So Resurrection Sunday will be next Sunday. And Good Friday is this Friday coming up. So Sunday to Sunday, this is the most important week of the year to remember uh, what Jesus has done for us. Um, Palm Sunday is called Palm Sunday because when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people uh, welcomed him with palm branches. And we're going to talk about that today, um, what all of that means and what was going on uh, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. When I was a little boy, I used to get excited about Christmas, but the older I get, Christmas is still fun, but my favorite time of the year is Easter because it just reminds me again and again of how important and how necessary and vital and without compare Jesus' work on the cross is. I couldn't live without it. Literally, I could not live without it because of what Jesus did when he came and was willing to sacrifice himself and die on the cross, take the penalty for my sin. And because he was willing to do that and die on the cross three days later, Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday, we will celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and is now sitting at the Father's right hand, waiting to return to take us to be with himself. So I get excited about Palm Sunday but I get more excited about Easter Sunday. But Palm Sunday's good. And so today I want to share with you a message from that first Palm Sunday. And the message comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open to the first Gospel, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And we're going to be looking at the first 22 verses. And I've entitled the message today, Who is this? Who is this? Now, frankly, I didn't make up this title out of nothing. Where this title comes from is actually verse 10 of the passage. And I will read that for you. Matthew 21, verse 10 says this. And when he, that is Jesus, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? And so the title of the message today is, Who is this? And Matthew is going to tell us, and Jesus is going to show us. So before we look at the details of this passage, let's bow one more time for a word of prayer. 
Father God, we've just been singing about your greatness, how great you are, and you are great. And we thank you for your greatness. We thank you also for your kindness and your grace in sending Jesus to be the Savior for the world. We thank you that as we read in your word today, Jesus was willing to come into the city of Jerusalem knowing what was in front of him, knowing that within five days, the people who were shouting and cheering and clapping and uh, worshiping him would turn on him and would turn their backs on him and prefer the hypocrisy of the, the leaders in the temple and listen to them rather than listening to Jesus, the true Messiah. And he was willing to be mocked and to be uh, beaten. And he was willing to die on a cross for our sins. Thank you that he was willing to do that. Thank you that you didn't leave him in the grave, but that you raised him from the dead. On Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday, is the anniversary. And we thank you and praise you for that. And so today, as we look at the beginning of that story, Palm Sunday, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to help us to understand what your Bible is saying to us, that our hearts would be open to your Holy Spirit's prompting about what we should think and what we should say and what we should do. And we pray that as this message goes forth, Jesus Christ would be glorified and lifted up. Cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to start with a little bit of a geography lesson. Because geography in this part of Matthew's gospel becomes really, really important if we're going to understand what Jesus is doing in this uh, chapter 21. So a little bit of background. Now, you're looking at this map and you're saying, wow, that map's awfully tiny. I can't see what any of that says. Don't worry, I'll, I'll make it clear for you so you can understand what's going on, okay? But as you know, every year there are five festivals that Israel uh, is required. Everyone in the country and around the world, frankly, um, is required to return to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to worship God. And at this time, the most important festival is called Passover. And so this is the Passover season. So Jesus, most of his life and ministry, he's born in Bethlehem as a baby, but as we saw at Christmas time, um, his family moved down to Egypt for a while, and then when they came back from Egypt, they lived up in Nazareth. Now where's Nazareth? There's Nazareth, way up there in the north part of Israel. And the first part of Jesus' ministry and the main part of Jesus' ministry where he taught, where he healed people, where he instructed his disciples and taught them to pray, most of these things took place in the north, in the north part of Israel, around Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee, which is identified on the map there for you. But every year, Jesus and his disciples would make their way down to Jerusalem 
because they needed to celebrate the Passover and the other feasts that were there as well, Feast of Pentecost and so on. So as we come to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus and his disciples have been working their way down south from Nazareth through the land of Israel, coming down to get to the city of Jerusalem. There's no plane, there's no bus, there's no train, and so they're walking to get there. And as we come to chapter 21, in chapter 20, Jesus has been with his disciples in Jericho. Where is Jericho? Jericho is right down there. So he's been making his way down from uh, Nazareth to Jericho. And now as we move into chapter 21, Jesus and his disciples are making the last part of the journey to get to Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is right there. Now, how far did they have to go? The distance between Jericho and Jerusalem is about 20 kilometers. But on the way there, um, Jerusalem is much higher elevation than all the areas around it. So to make your way from Jericho to Jerusalem is basically very uphill. So you're traveling uphill and you're trying to get from Jericho, which is down low, down by the sea, and you're going up, 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 up to get to the mountaintop where Jerusalem is. Okay, so as they're going along, they're climbing in elevation about a thousand meters. And when they start getting close to Jerusalem, they pass through a city called Bethany. Bethany is close by to Jerusalem, it's just outside Jerusalem. And then as they pass through Bethany, Bethany is going to become important because Jesus goes out of Jerusalem back to Bethany in our text today. And after you pass through Bethany, you're on the Mount of Olives. Now, as you're passing through the Mount of Olives, you pass through a place called uh, Bethphage. Bethphage. And this is a place, literally in Hebrew, Bethphage means house of figs. And this is a place where there's a lot of fig trees. And that's going to become important in the story today as well. And so they're climbing up, they're climbing up, and as they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is slightly higher than Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's here, and they're about 100 meters higher, looking down on Jerusalem, which is also on a mountain. So they go to the Mount of Olives, they pass through the Kidron Valley, and they come back into Jerusalem. So that's the geography part that's going to become important to understand what's going on in these 22 verses. Okay? So geography lesson over. So what are we looking at today? As I said, the title of the message is, Who is This? And we're going to look at three scenes in chapter 21, three different scenes where Jesus is going to say and do things that will demonstrate exactly who he is. So in verses 1 to 11, Jesus is going to show himself to be the gentle ruler. And then in verses 12 to 17, he's going to show himself to be the holy healer. 
And finally, in verses 18 to 22, we're going to see a brief instance. I struggled to name this one. It's not the best name in the world, but I'm going to call Jesus the fruit seeker. Now that sounds weird. Trust me, when we get there, it'll make some sense. Okay? So these three parts of Jesus coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, knowing that he's going to die on the cross, he reveals himself for who he is in these three little scenes. So let's start with the first one. Jesus is the gentle ruler. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. So if you look at the text, verse 1 says this. Now when they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, traveling together from Jericho, moving up the hill, heading towards Jerusalem, when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to the house of figs, that place where all the fig trees are, to the Mount of Olives. So they're up high on the mountain. They're getting really close. They can see Jerusalem and where the temple is and all of that. This is where they're going. They're headed to Jerusalem. And as they're going, Jesus begins to start to show them again who he is. Because when we look at the last part of verse 1 and into verse 2, it says this. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now you think, that seems kind of weird. Why would Jesus, after walking all this way, it's 20 kilometers from Jericho, he's walked all this way, he's walked all the way from Nazareth, frankly, he's walked all this way, and now the last bit of the way, he wants a donkey, Is he tired? Is he lazy? No. And he's asking for them to get for him a donkey uh, with a colt. Now, the the word that's used here for colt simply means like uh, it's a full-grown adult, but it's never been ridden on. And so Jesus asks them to bring a donkey that has never been ridden on for him to ride on. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know enough about animals on a farm that if you try and get on a donkey or a goat or a horse that has never been ridden, guess what happens? That's when they start doing the bucking thing and kicking you off and all of that stuff because they don't, they don't know what you're doing. They don't like it. And yet, in the middle of all of that, Jesus says, I want you to go into the village right in front of you. As we head to the Valley of Kidron, I want you to go into the village there. I want you to bring me back a donkey. And I want you to bring me back the foal or the colt of the donkey, never been ridden on, so that I can ride on it. And if anybody says to you, what are you doing taking this colt? What are you doing? Tell them the Lord needs them. 
Who is this? What is he doing? What is he saying? Well, if we focus in, first of all, on the last part, this is one of the few times that Jesus identifies himself as the Lord. The Lord needs them. And Matthew is trying to alert us to the fact that Jesus now is beginning to show not only his disciples, but the people around him, that he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the one that God had sent from heaven to save his people. So what happens next? Well, the disciples, good people, go and do what Jesus says. But in verse 4, just in case we missed it, verse 4, Matthew reminds us why is Jesus doing this? And verse 4 uh, and 5 says this. This took place, meaning going to get the donkey and have Jesus ride on a donkey. What's all that about? This took place to fulfill, to give full significance to what was spoken by the prophet, saying... And this is what we read in our scripture reading this morning from Zechariah 9, the very first verse that was read. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. What kind of donkey? On a colt. What kind of colt? The foal of a beast of burden. In other words, this is a, a wild donkey. And yet, Jesus is able to ride on this donkey. Now, what does the prophecy from Zechariah, why would this be important? Well, if you were paying attention, and even if you weren't, during the scripture reading, Zechariah 9 is talking about God providing salvation to his people. And the symbol of God bringing salvation to his people is that the king is going to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So the coming of uh, God's king will be the appearance of the Lord for the people. So Jesus is not lazy. Jesus is not tired. What Jesus is trying to alert people to the fact that he is the king. He is God's chosen one that is coming to bring peace. He is coming humble on a donkey, not on a white horse like a champion, like a military victor. He is coming on a donkey humble, bringing God's peace to his people. In other words, to put it very bluntly, Jesus is saying, the stuff that the Messiah is supposed to do, I am doing it. I am doing it. I am the Messiah. I am God's chosen one. So this is a prophecy from Zechariah. So what happens? Verse 
6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks. So Jesus is going to ride. Now the last part a lot of people get confused about. And he sat on them. Now the them doesn't mean the donkeys. Jesus is not some sort of stuntman who can put one leg on one donkey and the other leg on the other donkey and somehow ride down the street like some sort of stuntman. The them refers to the cloaks. So they put the cloaks on the donkey and Jesus sat on the cloaks. Okay? So what's going on here? Now, as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, let's remember what's going on here. This is the Passover is coming. So the requirement is that everybody from all over the country is going to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus and his disciples, as they're coming, they're not coming alone. They're coming along with all sorts of other people who are on the road, on the journey, headed toward Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So as Jesus comes and they bring the donkey to him and they put the cloaks on the donkey and Jesus begins to sit on the donkey and starts to ride toward Jerusalem, people look and they think, hmm... Hmm, this is very significant. This is important. And then they start to get excited. Zachariah said, when the Messiah, when the king comes and brings peace to his people, he's going to come riding on a donkey. This Jesus guy who fed 5,000 people with a little bit of food. This guy Jesus who cast out demons. This guy Jesus who has preached and taught us the way to understand who God is and what he wants us to do. He's now sitting on a donkey. He is riding into Jerusalem. This is it. This is it. We are seeing God's chosen one come. And so in verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Again, that seems kind of weird. Take your, your jacket off and throw it on the ground. They're not mad. What they're doing is in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when the king would come into the city of Jerusalem after being victorious in battle, in celebrations, the people would take off their cloaks and put them on the ground. Why? Because as the horses come along, all sorts of dust comes up. But by putting the cloaks down, they make it a smooth path and there's no dirt and all of that. It's a way of celebrating and saying, the king is here. So most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Other people cut branches from the tree. And this is why we call today Palm Sunday. They went around to the palm trees. They cut off branches. They put them on the ground. They're trying to get excited and show that they understand what is happening. The king is coming to Jerusalem. 
and they are excited. So verse 9 says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him. So you've got people in front of him. You've got people behind him. And Jesus is riding on this donkey that's never been ridden on before. And people are putting their cloaks and the palm branches down on the ground. And now they start to shout. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What are they saying? Hosanna is a word in their language that means save us. Save us. Hosanna means to save. And so they're calling out to the son of David. Who is the son of David? The king that will be on the throne forever. Save us, king. Save us, King Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This This whole section comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This kind of praise to God is announcing the coming of the King, the coming of the Messiah. Save us, King Jesus. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us to the uttermost. Save us in the highest So they get it. The people who are coming with Jesus, they get it. They see the donkey. They see who Jesus is. They've seen up in that area, up in the north, all the things that Jesus has done. And now as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, they are excited. They are thrilled. Because, maybe not completely correctly, they think that Jesus is going to kick the Romans out and get rid of all of that, and now everything will be perfect. Now, they're not exactly right. They're not exactly wrong. We're going to see. But what they understand absolutely correctly is that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the King. The fact that he's riding on a donkey is to say, I am here to bring Peace. Peace to you. And so the people get excited. They throw their cloaks down. They throw the palm trees down. They start to shout. And that's when we get to verse 10, which I already read at the very beginning. So Jesus is coming down from the north. He's with all of these people who have witnessed this. And when he gets to the city of Jerusalem... The place with the temple, the place with the religious leaders, the place where they're supposed to be worshiping God. When he enters Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. Now, stirred up sounds like you're mixing brownies or something. You know, you put in milk and butter and eggs and mix it up and it's stirred up. But the word that's used here is the word that is used when there, is thing, when there are things like an earthquake or something cataclysmic is happening. 
Uh, one other translation uh, translates this as, uh, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city went wild. The whole city went wild. Because you've got people coming, they're saying, here's the Messiah, he's riding on a donkey, he's coming into Jerusalem, he's going to bring peace. And everybody in the city is like, wait a second, what is going on? And their response is, who is this? They don't recognize who Jesus is. Now, had they seen Jesus before? Sure, Jesus has been in the temple several times before, probably five times each year to come and to worship at the temple. They've seen him. They've seen his run-ins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they're not saying, who is this Jesus guy? We've never heard of him. What they're really saying is, who does this Jesus guy think he is? Who does he think he is to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's not the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. So when the people in the city get all wound up and they're all confused and all in a tizzy because of Jesus coming and doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, their response is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in this way? And the crowds that are so excited to have Jesus come into the city, they tell them who this Jesus is. They say, this is the prophet Jesus from where we're from, from our hometown, from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus. He's ours. He's our king. He's our Messiah. He's the one who is coming. Notice that they don't call him the Messiah. They call him the prophet because they're, they're not even understanding fully correctly who Jesus is. They think that he is a prophet who is coming to bring in the deliverance from God. They themselves don't even perfectly recognize who Jesus is. They call him a prophet. But they think that as he comes in, he is going to bring deliverance from God. And he is, but they think God himself is going to give deliverance. And he is, but in the person of Jesus, the Lord. The Lord has need of this donkey. Jesus is the gentle healer. He has come in peace to save his people. So first of all, Jesus shows himself to be the gentle ruler. Now, beginning in verse 12 to 17, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and he begins to show himself to be not just the gentle ruler, but he is also the holy healer. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple... Now, let's stop there just for a quick second. If you go back to the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, 
First thing it says is, when the Messiah comes, suddenly he will enter God's temple and he will cleanse it and purify it. So Jesus rides into the city on his donkey, shows to everyone around him, I am fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9, to be the King Messiah. He gets off his donkey and immediately goes into the temple area. And I think people are expecting in the city, okay, the Messiah has come, he's come into the temple, we're all going to worship God and everything's going to be great and the Romans are going to get kicked out and they'll be gone and Jews will be number one forever. Hooray! Jesus entered the temple and he heals the temple. What does he do? Jesus enters the temple and he cleans it up. He makes the temple what it should always have been, holy. Jesus enters the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, what's going on here? When you go to the temple, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that they offer sacrifices. And you can offer lambs or bulls or certain kinds of birds, usually pigeons. Now, most of the people who are traveling from far away aren't going to bring all of those animals with them. So what they need to do is when they get to the temple area, they need to buy an animal that they can then sacrifice in the temple. So some entrepreneurs got together and they decided, hey, this is a good opportunity for us. Let's set up in the temple area and we will sell these people the animals and the oil and the flour and all the different items that they need in order to offer their sacrifices. And initially, that was an okay idea. But by the time of Jesus, what was going on was people were setting up in the temple area. And if a lamb was worth $5, they were charging $50. If a lamb was, or, or if a bull was worth $100, they were charging $1,000. And it was just a chance for them to make some money. And Jesus looks at this corruption and he comes suddenly to the temple. And his response is to say, Get out of here, you corrupt and evil people. Get out of here. So if you come from far away and you've got, you know, the Roman money, you've got to transfer the money. So he gets rid of the people that are cheating them by transferring their money. He's getting rid of the people who are overselling or, or overcharging for these animals. And Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. He gets rid of all these people who are using the temple for their own gain. And verse 13 tells us 
Why is Jesus doing this? Verse 13 says, He, meaning Jesus, said to them, and now he quotes from two places in the Old Testament. First one is Isaiah 56, verse 7. The last thing he says comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. He said to them, It is written, Isaiah says this, My house shall be called a house of prayer. What he's trying to say is, when God set up this temple, when Solomon built this temple, according to the instructions that God gave him, it was supposed to be a place where people from all nations could come and worship God. If you read Isaiah 56, verse 7, it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that was what it should have been. And that's what it was designed to be. But then Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 verse 11. But you have made it a den of robbers. You have corrupted it. You have turned it into something that it shouldn't be. So Jesus is the holy healer. He is coming into the temple area to cleanse it from corruption and from people. This word for robbers doesn't just mean people who steal. Later, when, we, when we're here on Good Friday, you may hear talk about Barabbas. Barabbas is an insurrectionist, a person who rebelled against the government. And the same word that's used for him is the same word that is used here. Someone who is rebelling against the authorities. Now, in this case, the authorities is God himself. So God's temple was designed to be a place for people to come and pray and worship God and be in relationship with him. And you have turned it into this self-contained, nationalistic, lucky charm. What do I mean? The people of Jesus' time viewed the temple not as a place to worship God, but as a good luck charm that if we have the temple here, no one can hurt us because there's no way that God will let his temple be hurt because that's his dwelling place which is the exact same attitude they had when the first temple was there. And guess what happened to that temple? It was destroyed. And on the next slide, we're going to see, after they came back to the land and rebuilt the temple, and Herod came and built this whole area around the temple. And so Jesus has gone into this big, wide area called the Court of the Gentiles, to clean out all of these people who have come to try and rip people off in the place where they're supposed to be worshiping God. And Jesus goes suddenly into the temple area, showing himself to be the Messiah, and he cleans it up. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And while he's in this temple area, verse 14 tells us, Jesus goes on and does something other 
something other that is spectacular that none of the religious leaders would ever be happy about. Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now you would think that the religious leaders would be happy that Jesus healed people. But they're mad because he healed people in the temple. Sick people aren't supposed to go into the temple, they say. It's only for the ones who are healthy and strong. Get out. You're not invited. You're not allowed to be in the temple. And in fact, their idea was if anyone touches or deals with someone who is sick or lame or blind in the temple area, you yourself have to go out because you are unclean. And yet, not only does Jesus not make himself unclean, he makes them clean. He is the holy healer. He is the one who is bringing to fulfillment all that God promised that his Messiah, his Christ, would do. He cleanses the temple. He heals people in the temple area. Jesus is showing himself to be better than the temple. And how do the religious leaders respond to all of this, all of these signs, all of these pointers, all of these arrows showing Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. Verse 15 says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Save us, son of David. They were annoyed. They were indignant. Mm. Mm. Who is this Jesus guy? What does he think he is? What does he think he's doing? And so they say to Jesus, Do you hear what these ones are saying? Tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop talking. They're not supposed to be saying this stuff. Tell them to stop. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, Yeah, I hear them. Have you never read? This is a phrase that Jesus used quite a bit. And it's his way of saying, How can you be people that say that you know what the Bible says and yet you don't know what the Bible says? So he says, yes. Have you never read? And I'm sure you have because you're supposed to be the religious law experts. Have you never read Psalm 8 verse 2? And then he quotes it. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So what does Jesus say? If we look at Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8 is a psalm where people are giving praise to God because he is God. And now Jesus is using this psalm to describe himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, 
I am God. And these children who don't know anything know enough to know to recognize me and praise me as God. And you, the religious experts who study the law day and night and should know what all of these signs are pointing to, your response is, tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop doing what they're doing. This is wrong. No, you're wrong. And so Jesus is showing sign after sign after sign to say that he is the Messiah. So he finishes his work in the temple and then he leaves, verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany. It's just a little town just outside of Jerusalem. So he's left Jerusalem, the mountain. He's gone across the Kidron Valley and he's back over here by the Mount of Olives in a place called Bethany. And he stayed there overnight. This is the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Maybe he stayed with them. Doesn't say specifically, but that's their town. So Jesus goes out of Jerusalem again, and he stays overnight in Bethany. And this leads us very quickly to our last point. Jesus is the fruit seeker. This is in verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 says this, In the morning... So Jesus has slept overnight in Bethany, and now he's going to come back to Jerusalem to continue to prepare for the Passover. In the morning, as he's returning to the city, remember where Jesus has to pass through? He's got to pass through Bethphage. What's Bethphage called? House of Figs. So he's, he's walking across the top of the Mount of Olives. He can see Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and he sees what? He gets hungry. And as he's hungry, he needs something to eat. And so verse 19 tells us he sees some trees. He sees a fig tree. Verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. Now again, I'm not a farmer. I don't know too much about fig trees and all of that. But here's the point. Passover, when Jesus is there, is March or April. The season for fruit in Israel, for fig trees, is June, later. So it's not outrageous that when Jesus would come to this tree, that there would be no fruit on it. But you notice how Matthew describes the tree. He says, there's only leaves on it. Now, the point that he's trying to make is when fig trees grow in Israel, when the figs come out, then the leaves come out. So leaves on the tree is supposed to indicate fruit on the tree. So Jesus comes to the tree. He's hungry. He looks at the tree. He sees leaves on the tree, which should indicate that there's fruit on the tree. And when he gets to the tree, there's nothing. Just leaves, only leaves, no fruit. It didn't have any fruit. And so Jesus says, may no fruit ever come from you again. 
That sounds kind of mean. Why is Jesus being mean to the tree? The tree didn't do anything to him. Now, Jesus is not being mean. He's using this to talk about hypocrisy. That just like he has shown by riding in on the donkey and cleansing the temple and getting rid of the money changers and healing people, the response of the people who should be worshiping him and following him, their response is, what are you doing? Who are you? Make them stop. In other words, the hypocrites are the people in Jerusalem who are not recognizing him as Messiah. They have leaves, but they have no fruit. They have leaves, but they have no fruit. So Jesus says, may no fruit ever come from you again. What is he doing? He's showing that this system is broken and someone needs to come and fix it. And the only way to fix it is for me to die on the cross and take the penalty for people's sin. This corrupt system of ripping people off to offer sacrifices at the temple. It's not working anymore. So may fruit never come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So when the disciples saw it, verse 20, they marveled, they were shocked. How did the fig tree wither at once? In other words, Jesus says it and now the fig tree is is withered up. And it was exposed for what it was, useless. How did this happen? How did the fig tree wither at once? Now let's remember, where are they? They're standing on top of the Mount of Olives. And they're headed towards the Kidron Valley. And they can see across the valley the temple on another mountain. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what you have seen done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, not a mountain, this mountain, which mountain are they looking at? They're looking at the temple. You can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. If you trust God, you don't need the temple. If you can trust God, the temple is of no value to you. It can be taken up and thrown into the sea. It doesn't matter. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the temple isn't going to save you because they and the people who are there are not producing fruit. They are not following me. There has to be a better way. And if you will believe in me and you will trust in me, you will see greater things than these because Jesus is 
the only answer. Jesus, putting your faith and trust in Jesus is the only answer. Believe in him and he will meet your needs. So what is the application for us? The people on Palm Sunday, the hypocrites, the liars, were asking, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Jesus tells them, he is the gentle ruler. He came to bring peace. Peace between us and God. Peace between us and others. Peace within ourselves. Jesus is the only one that can bring that because he was willing to be the humble king and die on the cross for our sins so that if we believe in him, we can come to a relationship with God and live with him forever. But that offer is temporary. John Piper puts it this way. Jesus came the first time and he's coming again as the king over all kings, king of Israel, king of all the nations, king of nature and the universe. But until he comes again, right now we are living in a day of amnesty and forgiveness and patience. It's as if Jesus is still riding on that donkey saying, peace, there is peace for you. But one day he's going to come riding on a white war horse with a rod of iron. That's what Revelation 19, 11 says. But now, in this moment, on Palm Sunday, he is ready to save all who receive him as savior and treasure and king. Who is Jesus? He is the gentle ruler. He is willing to be ruler in your life if you will put your faith and trust in him. Who is Jesus? He is the holy healer. As the true temple of God, Jesus offers hope and salvation to all people. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be living in the first century. You don't have to be anything. Jesus is the true temple of God, and he offers hope and salvation to all people. He can take away your sin and bring you new life. God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And if you will believe him and trust him and give your life to him, he will hear you if you call out to him, Hosanna, save me, save me. Lastly, if you have given your life to Jesus already, and you are here today and say, that's nice. I'm a follower of Jesus. I already follow him. Well, let me remind you too that Jesus is the fruit seeker. It's not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is God. He is God. But just simply to say, okay, Jesus is God is not enough. James chapter 2 says it this way. You believe that Jesus is God or you believe in God? Great. The demons also believe. No big deal for that. Just to say that Jesus is God, it's an established fact. It doesn't matter. What you have to do is be in relationship with God. Have a living faith and trust in Jesus. 
Again, from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, the righteous, the just, will live a life of faith. Live a life of faith. Not just say, I have faith. Live a life of faith. James chapter 2 as well says, faith without works is dead. Jesus has come to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can live for him. And just like the fig tree had no fruit, God, when he saves us and puts his Holy Spirit in us to live in us, then he enables us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I would encourage you today, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, and you're saying, who is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's here to save you, to take control of your life, to heal you, to produce fruit in your life. I would encourage you to talk to Pastor Nick or talk to me about giving your life to Jesus so that you can live at peace with God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to be all the things we've just seen in Matthew 21, the gentle ruler, the holy healer, the fruit seeker. Help us to be people of faith, to trust in Jesus, to believe him, to know that what he said about himself is true, to, to know that what he showed about himself is true, that he is your son, the king, the Messiah, the one who can save us from our sins. Help us to be people who believe and trust in Jesus with our whole lives so that we can produce that fruit that is pleasing to you, to the glory of Jesus and you, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.